1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14. Kind of give you a recap as you're turning there. We've been looking at this book and uh, understanding that it was written by Paul to Timothy to teach him how to pastor and to shepherd a church. We are trying to read this and glean information that we can apply to ourselves as we seek to function as a biblical church. We've looked at how church members should carry themselves, what church leaders should exist, what they should do. We looked at the overseer office, which is in Scripture, it's also pastor or elder is what it's referred to. And this person is a spiritual administrator and overseer in the church. They give oversight over spiritual things. They preach God's word, pray. And then you have the deacon, and this is the spiritual servant in the church. The primary emphasis is on protecting the responsibilities of the pastors of the church so that they can guide the church spiritually. And they do this through practical acts of service. Now, it's not to say that all pastors should do is pray and teach. And it's not to say that deacons can't do those things. But there is a proper order in the church. And the Bible has gifted us with both of these offices to do those things. So this week we're going to finish up 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 14 and read uh, 15 and 16, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of break that down. It's a really good, just kind of a summary of what we've been discussing. So hopefully you're there. I'll start reading. You can follow along in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of truth of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So this kind of these three verses here give a really good kind of conclusion to the point that Paul started making back in First Timothy chapter two. I'm going to say starting in verse 1, he begins the instructions to the church. And then going down to verse 8, he starts to give specific instructions to specific people in the church. He looks at men, he looks at women, he looks at overseers, he looks at deacons. And then now, at the end of chapter 3, he kind of concludes that little section and says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's trying to write to Timothy to tell him, in my absence, here's how the church should function. This is what things should look like until I arrive. I wanted to tell you in person, but I don't know when I'm going to be there, so I wrote to you. So what this tells us, first of all, is that whatever Paul wanted to relate to Timothy, all the information we've been studying, it wasn't a small issue. If it was a small issue, he would have waited. But he took time, got a scribe, wrote out a letter, gave it to a messenger, and had this person take it physically to Timothy. Everything that he gave us so far is important. It's vital. Tonight we're going to answer this question, why? What's the big deal about men and women acting a certain way in church? Why do we need elders or overseers or pastors? Why do we need deacons? Why do they need all of these qualifications? We're going to answer that 
question, and we see it beginning to be answered right here. It's because it's important. It's urgent. The church does not have to operate properly in order to operate well. And this should be a scary thought for us. It's possible for our church to function perfectly fine, though we're still functioning unbiblically. That's kind of scary for me. It's similar to um, John Piper gave, I think it was, uh, he was speaking at a conference once, and I was listening to it on a podcast, so I think he'd already spoken it, and I was just re-listening to it. And he said, I used to, and people would greet me, and I would greet them, they would say, well, how are you? And I would say, well, I'm good, I'm, I'm fine. And then he was diagnosed with, I think it was cancer at one point. And so he worked through that, and he said, now I no longer say, when someone says, how are you? And I say, oh, I'm fine. I no longer say that. I say, well, I think I'm fine. So because for the longest time, I thought everything was okay. But there was a cancer growing on the inside that I had no way of knowing it was there. I didn't see any symptoms of it. The only way to know it was there was for someone who was trained and professional to look and say, something's not right on the inside. And it's not having a negative effect now, but it will in the future if it goes unchecked. And it's the same thing with our church. Our church can operate just fine, even though it's not operating properly. And the effects of that may not reveal themselves until years later, maybe a generation later, maybe two generations later. And so it's important that we recognize for Paul this was an urgent issue. This should cause us to reevaluate on a regular basis, our church in light of scripture. It's part of the reason for going through First Timothy. The proper operation of the church is vital. What we want to look at tonight is why. Why is the proper operation of the church vital? I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, the proper operation of the church is vital because... Number one, the church is the household of the living God. If you look in our passage here, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. I've kind of put those two things together. So today, the modern family unit is a lot different than it was back then. When it speaks about a household... Or like you see um, the man of the house, you would see his name listed. That would include more than just him. They counted things differently back then, and they structured things differently. A lot of times a household would include mother, father, children, but it could also include extended family. It could include servants. It could include stewards who are given certain tasks. So a household might include a whole bunch of people. Jesus spoke this way, and the New Testament has other places where they refer to servants in a master's house. Or the difference between the children in a master's house and the servants of a master's house. It comes up frequently. So in a household, there would be multiple roles, responsibilities, and privileges. And over all of these moving parts in the household, there was the master, the head of the house. And he oversaw all the things in the house and made sure things functioned. When the stewards of their property had a report, they would come up to them and say, well, here's, here's my account. Here's how things are going. Servants, kids, everybody in the household. The master was over it. 
If the master did not keep track over these things, or if things weren't done according to his instruction, things would start to get out of whack. Something would cease to function the way it was supposed to, and it would eventually lead to chaos. Likewise, the church here is described as the household of the living God. Notice it's not the household of the dead God or the distant God, but the living God. The master of the household is alive and well. And he's given us instruction. He's told us how the household should operate. We, as a part of this household of God, should seek to operate properly within the church. See this in a couple of places. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, there's this analogy of the body of Christ being an actual body to help us kind of get this picture. I'm going to read 14 through 20, and then I'm going to read 27 through 28. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you want to bookmark this later, really this whole chapter is good for understanding spiritual gifts and the body of Christ and how these things should operate. I'm just going to read verses 14 through 20. Listen to how Paul talks about the church or the body of Christ here. 1 Corinthians 12, 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I'm going to skip down to verse 27 and read 27 and 28. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So notice here that the body consists of many members. There's individual members, and there's one body. And as they all come together, we look at that and we say, that is one thing, even though there's multiple parts of the one thing. And all the members of the body have a different function. We might be tempted to look at someone else and say, well, I don't have that function, therefore I'm not important in the body. And the part that we kind of skipped over there argues against that and saying every part, even the parts that seem the most insignificant, They're actually the most important sometimes. So as you look at the body here, the question I want us to consider is, who is it that determines the parts of the body in what they do? If you're open to there, I'm going to read it again, but you can look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God arranges as he chooses. He orchestrates and orders the household of God. And in verse 28, God has appointed in 
the church. So we see this in 1 Corinthians 12. One more place that I'm going to turn and show you is in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the unity of the body of Christ. And in verses 4 through 7, in speaking about that, he he talks about uh, God orchestrating the body. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skipping down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So there is one God who calls us to one body and gives different gifts in different measures to the individual members. And what's the purpose of this? For building up the body of Christ. When the church operates according to God's design, the church grows and is built up. He's designed it to function that way. When we begin to step outside of that, what we're going to do is we're going to hinder the growth of the church. Can the church still grow that way? Yes. Will it be hindered? Yes. Because it's not according to God's design. We are not the master of the household. God is. So the proper operation of the church is vital, number one, because it is the household of the living God. This isn't just any institution. It is the institution of the living God. Number two, why is the proper operation of the church vital? Because the church is a pillar and buttress of truth. So this phrase, pillar and buttress, I went and looked at different translations. Almost every single translation, this is the only one I saw buttress after pillar. Every other one almost always was foundation or support And then there were several translations that said ground. But then the ESV, for whatever reason, uses this, uh, which I appreciated. I got to learn some things. So if you look up kind of the Greek word there, buttress and pillar are very similar. They're both supports. But buttress kind of gives a different perspective on it. Some of you who are involved with construction may know this. But a buttress is a structure that is built against another structure in order to keep it in place. So it's kind of like a like a support beam, like the pillars are holding something up, but then you would put something on the side to hold it in or to keep it from falling out. That's what a buttress is. It's used a lot of times in building dams. Well, this word can also be translated mainstay, and that's a rope that holds a boat in place. So the idea is the same in both instances. There's an outside force Keeping something in a proper location. It's the idea. So the same thing is true of the church. The church is not the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The church is this outside structure that lifts up 
That's the idea of a pillar and supports and keeps the truth in place where it ought to be. When all other institutions are moving away from objective truth, the church should be moving towards it and embracing it and standing for it. This is really important for us. Fact of the matter is, in our culture, truth is under attack. We read the news, we watch the videos on Facebook or whatever social platform you're on, on television, and we see these things happening across our country. And I think that if we're not careful, we might be tempted to think, well, that's in California. Well, that's in Oregon. Well, that's in Michigan. Well, that's at this location. This is here in Gina, Louisiana, too. It's everywhere. It's a poisonous idea that truth, at least in part, is relative or subjective. Now, if you haven't done a lot of reading on this, I'm going to define some of these things for you, and you'll see why it's important here in just a second. So what is objective truth and what is subjective truth? Objective truth... Is like a solid object. It doesn't change. If truth is objective, it is what it is. Garrett is a man. Objective truth. Gravity will pull me to the ground after I jump. Objective truth. Now that truth could change. Okay? So my plate is full of food. That's an objective truth. 20 minutes later, my plate is empty. It's true. That's an objective truth. Subjective truth means that the value can change. It can be true sometimes, but then it's not true other times. Or in the same moment, it could be true for some people or not true for other people. So to give you an example, ice cream is cold. Lava is hot. We're going to grow old and die. These are just true. And some would argue, yeah, but there's some truth that is subjective. It changes. For instance, ice cream is delicious. Broccoli is nasty. I think that's objectively true, but some people disagree. So someone would say, well, those aren't objective. So see, truth can change. Someone might disagree. Well, broccoli, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. So before I go any further and make a big deal about this, because I know that some people are going to say, is this really that important for us to break down like this? And I think it is. So I want to answer two questions before I make my point here. What's the big deal about this? Why is it important? And is this really something that we're going to see in Gina, Louisiana? I'm going to answer both of those. Number one. Why would it really be so bad to believe that truth can sometimes be subjective and change? If we accept the idea that truth is subjective or relative, what's going to happen is we will remove every restraint from any person regarding what they believe and how they want to act upon it. If something can be true for someone but not true for someone else, we have removed our tool 
to be able to confront wrong thinking. And what's going to happen is wrong thinking will lead to wrong actions. If you disagree with me, think about 9-11. The people that carried out those actions were convinced of a truth. Now that truth was wrong, but some might argue, well, no, Christianity is true for you. Islam is true for me. And the consequence of allowing that to go unchecked is that someone might actually follow through with what they believe. Ideas have consequences. If there's no such thing as objective truth, then all of the things can be true and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't argue with someone and say, you shouldn't believe that. Well, why not? Well, we can't say it's not true. It is true for them. Well, what argument are you going to give? Well, it would be better to be a Christian. Well, I don't believe that. For me, it's better to be this. There's no more dialogue. There's no more discussion. We just have to sit back and just let everybody do as they feel they want to do. Well, what's the, what's the harm in that? May we not forget history. It will repeat itself. Think back to the book of Judges. What was the big problem then? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And look where it got them. You look at cultures all around the world who are told what to believe is true. I think it was New Zealand. I read an article today. And a government leader in New Zealand, I think it was New Zealand. I could be wrong on this. Said something to the effect of, if you don't hear it from us, don't believe it. We will tell you what's true. When a government is telling their people that, it's a bad sign. So all of these consequences flow from a poisonous idea. And this is where our world is heading. And I'm going to give you an example. Consider the gender ideology and sexuality debate. Our culture has bought into the idea that you cannot tell someone who is homosexual that their lifestyle is sinful. To you it is, but to them it isn't. And if you tell them that it's sinful, that's wrong. Because for them, that's truth. You can't correct that. The consequence is that people are emboldened to embrace sin because it isn't ever spoken out against. What are the consequences of this for the church? The free speech that we utilize, that I'm using right now in preaching the gospel, is attacked for the sake of inclusivity and tolerance. We become persecuted for stating that Christianity is absolutely true. It becomes a moral evil to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way to the Father except through Him. That becomes a moral evil to say that. We have to believe that truth is true and non-truth isn't. We have to believe that it is objectively true or it's objectively false across the board. Is this actually going to be a big deal in Gina? Here's the second question. This worldview is more prevalent than you realize. Have you ever heard any of the following statements in Gina, in your workplace, at your schools here? I'm going to read off some of these. Have you ever heard any of the following? 
Well, that's true for you, but not for me. You can't force your values on me. That may work for you, but that doesn't work for me. Well, that's kind of arrogant thinking that you're right and that everyone else is wrong. You determine what's right for you and your family, and I'll determine what's right for me and my family. Don't impose your values on me. Well, that's just how you were raised. I was raised differently. Or that's just how they were raised. We're raised differently. Every single idea I just brought up all flows from this ideology. And what's happened is our culture has said, well, that's not really, if someone wants to live like that, just let them be. It doesn't bother us. That ideology has seeped into our culture and it's a poison. And it is attacking truth. And the church's responsibility is to lift up the truth and to support it and to hem it in and sustain it and keep it where it needs to be. And when we just let this ideology go unchecked, we are helping to spread this virus. That's how we've gotten to where we're at today. So we must uphold the idea of objective, absolute truth. Psalm 119, 160 says that the sum of God's word is truth and that it endures forever. God is the truth. And we must stand on the integrity of God and his word. Now, at some point, someone's going to ask and say, well, what about the ice cream and broccoli example? You, you literally gave an example where truth is relative. It's true for someone. It's not true for someone else. No. The truth, the statements that I gave are objective. They're absolute. They're just unclear and incomplete. The objective truth is ice cream is delicious to Garrett. That is the objective truth. That will not change. I don't foresee it changing. Broccoli is nasty to Garrett. That truth doesn't change. Now, someone else will say, well, I think broccoli is delicious. Well, the truth is to you, broccoli is delicious. That's true. It's not going to change. There's going to be other examples that you get from this. And there's arguments that answer every single one of those points. You probably won't face some of the heftier philosophical arguments against this idea here. Probably not going to happen. But you will see people who unknowingly propagate this idea and live according to it. And say, well, you can't tell me what's right or wrong. We have to stand for what's true. The church is called to do this. The church must do this. Because we are proclaiming the most important truth in the universe. God has created everything. And we, his creation made in his image, has rebelled against him and are subject to judgment. And everyone who does not repent and trust Christ will face judgment for their sin for eternity. If we don't stand for truth, period... We remove our opportunity to share that truth. 
So the church must, must protect truth and stand for it. If we allow truth to erode, then we no longer have a foundation to stand upon and proclaim that truth. So after kind of making this point, I want to actually read in Ephesians 4, we read just a moment ago, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to skip down a few verses. And in our context of the church body and all coming together and serving our different parts, and then the idea of the church being a pillar for the truth, listen to Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. It's just a few verses down. He gives us, Paul gives us the goal of the church being built up in this way. The goal is... That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So the danger is. That we might be deceived into believing something that's not true. That's the danger. So the church is structured and ordered to protect truth that we might not just kind of be tossed around with all these different ideas. And that in that, we would grow as the truth is spoken in love. So there's two things that happen here. Number one. The church is protected. Number two, the church grows as we embrace the truth of God. And this makes sense when we think about Satan in John 8, 44. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The best weapon that we have against Satan is the truth of God. Satan attacks the church with lies, hollow philosophy that promises happiness and satisfaction, but it really doesn't. This is the truth. We must stand upon this. And uphold it and support it. It will protect us. It will help us to grow as we speak it. And I need to point out these words in love. There's a lot of people that try to speak the truth, but they don't do it in love. The church needs to speak the truth in love. It is not loving to withhold the truth from someone that will save their life. It is also not loving... To just scream at someone about how horrible they are and that they'll go to hell unless they agree with you. I don't think that's the right approach either. But you do have to share that truth and it needs to be lovingly. So that's the second reason that the proper ordering of the church is vital. Let me give you the third reason. The proper operation of the church is vital because the church confesses the great Godly mystery of Christ. So in verse 16 here, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is believed to be an early hymn in the church. So this is something that they would sing to one another, and Paul is quoting it to Timothy as a way to teach him. It's obviously about Jesus. He became flesh, was evidenced by the Spirit. He was witnessed. He is proclaimed in the world. People believe upon him, and now he is in heaven, seated on his throne. We, as a church, join the witnesses before us who proclaim this truth to the nations. We are not some new organization that finally gets it after hundreds and hundreds of years of people not getting it. We are carrying a torch that was passed on to us by those before us, that was passed on to them by those before them, all the way back to the apostles. We're carrying a torch. Though we proclaim a mysterious truth, we proclaim it. Though we can't understand why a good God would die for a sinful people, we proclaim it. Though we can't understand why we might be declared righteous in Jesus' place, we proclaim it. Though we struggle to really fully understand God's great mystery, it's true nonetheless, and we proclaim it. We proclaim it with our hymns, with our songs, with our preaching, with our teaching, with our lives. With our lips, we proclaim the mystery of godliness that can be found in Christ. This is why it is such a vital issue that the church operates properly. Because we belong to the living God who has given us the truth to be confessed to the world. If we don't structure ourselves according to God's design out of fear and respect for God, We will hurt our ability to support the truth of God and will hurt our effectiveness as we confess Christ to the world. May we view this as vitally as God does. May we stand up for and support truth in a culture where it's wearing away quickly. And may we confess the truth of God that others may stop exchanging it for a lie and denying their sin. Let's pray. God, I admit it is deceptive living in a culture where these ideas are lying underneath the surface and often go unnoticed. It is difficult for people like me and people like us to recognize the dangerous ideas that are promoting the actions that we see in our culture. But we rejoice in the fact that, Father, you have given us the truth in your word, that the entire sum of your word is true, that you are a God who restores us from our false worship of created things, who restores us back to true worship, of you. We thank you that you delight in the truth, that you have sent Jesus the way, the truth, and the life to reveal to us, to pull the veil from over our eyes, and to reveal to us the truth of the gospel that you love us, that you died for us, to redeem us from the great lies of the enemy.
God, would you help us to properly operate as a church so that we might be equipped to support the truth, to keep the truth in its proper place, to understand the truth, all so that we might be better equipped and prepared to confess that truth, that great profound mystery of godliness, that Jesus, being God, took on flesh, became a man, was seen, was crucified, buried, but rose from the dead, arose to heaven, who currently intercedes for us right now as we speak, giving us gifts through the Holy Spirit. Father, we want to be a church that loudly proclaims that truth to a world that just doesn't want to hear it. Would you give us boldness to stand for the truth, to not back down from it? Would you give us an extra measure of love and grace in our speech to others as we proclaim the truth to them? Father, help us to operate properly as your church. We love you. We thank you for Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.